Hello and welcome to the Jenny Talks podcast. This week and next, I've got a little mini-series on parenting. Next week's is specifically about parenting through a pandemic. This week is a broader look at parenting, especially through challenging circumstances. I'm talking to my dear friend Christelle Loren about her story, how she is raising her boys in a very different style to how she was raised and, and in some very challenging circumstances. We do mention abusive relationships and trauma therapy, so if these topics are sensitive to you, you might want to make sure you're in a good, mentally healthy state before you listen. We also talk about love and hope, deposit we want to leave in our children's lives and how important it is to model self-care and help. Christelle's story includes some deconstruction from church and the brand of Christianity that she grew up with. She talks about the American Evangelical Church, which has some similarities, but also a whole lot of differences from the UK Evangelical Church scene. Christelle is a person who radiates hope and the possibility of change. And I really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you do too. It's coming up just now. So, hi, Christelle, and welcome to the Jenny Talks podcast. I'm so pleased that you're here. It's great to really chat to you. Um, I'm just going to kind of say for everybody listening that uh, Christelle and I are friends, and we've been friends for oh, nearly a year, I think. Yes, about a yeah. year. Um, and in that year we've had many conversations um, and it's been really great to kind of get to know Christelle a little bit so I am going to ask her um, if you if you would introduce yourself please for the listeners yes Jenny I'm so excited to be here as your guest on the podcast and I'm so excited that you're doing this by the way interviewing guests from I think around the world um, yes. as you said my name is Christelle I actually live in the U.S. across the pond in San Diego, California. Uh, my background um, is in the church sector where in all of my 20s and part of my 30s, I worked in ministry. Um, and that was primarily in women's ministries. I also was in um, a church as a an assistant to every pastor there. You know, here in America, churches are a little bit different, I hear. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> so you could be an assistant to, as I was, um, we had about five, six pastors on staff and I assisted them all. So anywhere from children's youth, uh, seniors, associate, um, and then I was in charge of a part of the children's ministries, nurseries, so that's part of it. Um, later on, I did nonprofit work for an amazing company that helped children fall in love with reading, probably one of my most favorite jobs in the world. Um, we did, we worked with students who were in, unfortunately, high poverty areas and low literacy areas. So that was incredible and a great time of my life. Um, I also taught preschool. Also, yeah. more than anything else, probably my second favorite job of all. Um, I've led many, many moms groups, started many moms groups, many women's groups. So that's my background, but I am here to talk about parenting. Mm. So... I am a mom of three boys. I don't remember if I said that. Two of them are adults, and one is actually a year older than I was when I had him, which is just <laughs> to think about. A little bit scary, isn't it, when they it's start scary. catching up with you? <laughs> he can have, have a one-year-old. I mean, but he is so wise. And then my second son is 
20 and my baby is 14. So mm -hmm. mom of three boys. You're a mom of boys too. It's I am, yes. Yeah. So one one who's about to be 15. So we have one yeah. at a similar sort of age. Um, both growing up so fast. It's incredible. Um, parenting is a little bit about why I wanted want to talk to you um, today on the podcast. So just tell us a little bit about your parenting approach because I know that you were a young mum weren't you um and and you have a particular had a particular kind of approach to parenting that that perhaps I think would be useful to cut to for our listeners to hear yeah yeah we were talking before uh we started recording or no I guess we were recording <laughs> <laughs> but my approach as I said you know I wanted to do things different than the way I was raised. I was raised very, very stereotypical American evangelical. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, you're going to have to help me with this. I already told you the child spare rod. What is it? What is oh, um, spare the rod, spoil the child. <laughs> yes, that, that was exactly how I was raised. And um, very much like anything you do something wrong you're in trouble you're on restriction yeah. and i wanted to raise my children different because i knew one it didn't work mm -hmm. um and two i wanted to have a relationship with my kids where they felt safe to converse with me and yeah. if the big issues happened yeah we would actually be able to have a conversation so yeah. in my young 20s my early 20s i joined a parenting group i surrounded myself with seasoned mentors seasoned parents and you know we're all learning none of us really know none of us none of us have the 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 gold the ticket yeah. yeah so um i felt like i i always say this i feel like my parenting was an experiment i had no idea if it was going to work or not but i surrounded myself with mentors one of which said um you know make sure that you have an approach to where you're able to talk to your children. And so that was really my approach. Um, I didn't get them in trouble for much. I let them keep a dirty room and figured, you know what? Yeah. They're gonna learn. If they wanna have a dirty room, that's their prerogative. Yeah. Those weren't the things that concerned me. Yeah. Um, and when the really deep, hard conversations happened, whether it was about girlfriends mm. or um, drugs or drinking, we were able to have them and they listened. Yeah. yeah. Those intense conversations happened. And yeah. so um, it seems like it worked. <laughs> We're still well, a work in progress. <laughs> isn't that an amazing thing to be able to look back and go, oh, actually, maybe that did that that worked the way I would have like would have loved it to have worked. I think that's really important. I think it's so we I have a very similar approach really to my two now. And it's partly because I know I'm not the tidiest person either so why am i why am i going to kind of bother trying to put that kind of order on my on my children as you say if they wanted to have a clean room they will they will clean their room and at some point in their life hopefully they will learn about how to clean their room <laughs> yeah and it's funny because one of my children is probably not as tidy as he could be the other one is exceptionally tidy the other one's middle i don't think mm -hmm. It's it's just not an issue to get all worked up over because they do what they yeah. <laughs> it all works itself out in that regard. But what does happen is when we keep focusing on all the little things, when the big things come up, we no longer have a voice in that if we're constantly interrogating them about the little things. Yeah. Um, so 
that was my approach. Like I said, it seemed to work. One of them is still messy and one of them is very tidy. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. That's great. I think that's a really important it's a really important point and, and it's one that um, you know, I think is is a really helpful thing. Why are we why would we try and just, as you say, nitpick all the little things or or ensure that they're always they're always doing something wrong. There's always something you've got to ca- try and catch them out doing wrong mm-hmm. um, in order to teach them a lesson about life in, in general. And I just think uh, it's not the way, you know, as you say, it doesn't work because you always yeah. end up with um, kids then who are always in trouble. So they don't mind getting into more trouble along the way. And that's that's quite that can be quite a, um, a vulnerable place for those young people to sit in, can't it, really? So yeah, so I guess my I guess to answer your question, my parenting style was more laid back. Yeah. Um, and I think I don't know if you were going to ask me about this, but to go along with it, I told you earlier that one of the things I I'm a reflector, mm. kind of introspective, and I do think about at the end of my life, what is it that I will have wanted to leave with my children? Mm-hmm. And literally, I think the only thing that I want to know that I taught them mm. is that big word love mm. but what actually is love because that, that word is is thrown around so much yeah what is it what does it mean what does it mean to love your partner what does it mean to love the world what does it mean to love yourself yeah but yeah. the part about loving yourself didn't come until much much later my 40s really yeah and so even we, we were talking about that, Jenny. Um, that's so key in having a healthy parenting style, I think, is modeling yeah. that loving yourself too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, it really is. And and I think there seems to be something about turning 40. We, you and I are the same age. <laughs> um, something about turning 40 that, that there's a change in em- the emphasis um, on how we think about ourselves, I think. Um, that can be quite an interesting change of emphasis. I, um, so, for example, for me in my 20s, I, I, although I was busy and um, probably outwardly looked like I was enjoying life, I think I felt incredibly self-conscious and incredibly kind of aware of myself, but in a way that was is, is not I don't mean by self-awareness. I mean, you know, just aware of things going wrong or things I said that were did or or said or did that were wrong um, in my twenties a lot of the time. And I think, you know, a lot of that, a, a lot of emotional energy going into something that perhaps wasn't particularly healthy. And then in my thirties, things were uh, better. I guess I felt. I think I felt a bit more. I did feel start to feel more self-confident and all the rest of it but I became a mum in my 30s so um you know that was a very different kind of decade for me and it's only been since turning 40 that I think almost something has shifted so that I am now much less self-conscious much less caring really about what other people think but in the in the nicest possible way so I think that's um that's really good and I love what you said about what would we want our kids to know, you know, when we're gone, when we're not here anymore, um, when they have left, whether that's them leaving home, as I know your two older two have done, haven't they recently? Mm-hmm. Um, or whether it's, whether it is when we are literally not here on this earth anymore, what do we want our children to know about and, 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 and obviously love, 
in its truest form and in its best understood form is is good for that so um Absolutely. so you came across or you um realized kind of as you went through your 20s that you were struggling with mental health tell us a little bit about that that kind of part of your life and um how you got diagnosed and all of that stuff it's so interesting to go back to my 20s and like you were saying having some form of self-awareness as much as I could at that time, but I was raised in a world where it just wasn't taught at the same time. Mm, yeah. And certainly mental health was pushed to the side mm. because in my world, if you need to heal from mental health, um, you just pray about it. Yeah. And in my world, you wouldn't de be depressed if you loved God. Mm -hmm. and all you need is the joy of the Lord. So yeah. talk about spiritual bypassing, which is a brand new word that I just learned <laughs> recently <laughs> in the midst of trauma therapy. I had never heard of this before, but I was mm -hmm. taught the utmost forms of, of spiritual bypassing, not, not mm -hmm. realizing it. So um, I had signs and symptoms since I was very young of having anxiety and possibly depression. Mm -hmm. Um, but who's going to open up about that in an unsafe environment? You're not allowed to talk about it. Or if you do, again, you're going to be met with criticism. So I never talked about it. And looking back now, I realized I would wake up with panic attacks probably in my late 20s, thinking I was having an asthma attack. Oh and I would self-medicate. I was taking mm -hmm. NyQuil. I don't know if you have that. In, so. Okay. So NyQuil something like it. yeah at, the, at that time nyquil had some form of alcohol in it so it would calm me and i just mm -hmm. thought i was having an asthma attack i now know that i was having panic attacks mm -hmm. i ended up getting diagnosed um in my early 30s because it got so bad after having two miscarriages um and in the midst of a move i had just made a major move across the country mm -hmm. um, i had two miscarriages new friends um very young family mm -hmm. learning to them. Um, so I started having symptoms. And let me tell you, if you're having anxiety, don't start Googling. Shortness of breath, all of that, because you're going to think you're having a heart attack. And I did. I thought I was dying. And that's so common for people with anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. We really do think that it feels like that. Your mm -hmm. heart could feel like you're having a heart attack. And you're going to have all the symptoms of that or a number of other things that you continue to Google. So I finally ended up um, going to the ER at that time. And I remember the first nurse I saw talked to the doctor and said she allegedly is having heart problems. And I was like, that is not kind. No, <laughs> to not least. Well, the doctor came in, he, he happened to be a cardiologist. Um, in the ER and he said he started asking me questions and I remember by the questions he asked me mm. what was kind of coming mm. so you just moved it's the holidays do you have support mm -hmm. I see you had two miscarriages and suddenly I remember I started crying because I realized what I was thinking though was oh my god I'm crazy mm. yeah right and yeah. so he he looked at me and he said listen um I want you to know that people who are extremely stressed, I see people in leadership positions, CEOs of major companies completely laid out with anxiety and depression. And he said, this is common, 
but I want you to um, talk to somebody. So he gave me the name of a therapist. And mm-hmm. of course, he gave me medication, first medication I ever took for anxiety. Mm-hmm. But that was the first person to ever diagnose me with anxiety. And thus began mm-hmm. my journey of, okay, now I know what I have. Mm-hmm. Now I know I've had it since I was young. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you know what's happening to your body, it's much easier to mm-hmm. um, kind of direct yourself in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I was also in an extremely abusive relationship. And so my anxiety actually didn't get better. Okay. Um, it spiraled into panic attacks, into um, being completely laid out, as the first doctor said, mm-hmm. unable to move. Um, and it wasn't until I left that relationship, though I knew what kind of mental health challenges I had, mm-hmm. choosing to leave that relationship was the, the beginning of an actual healing journey. Okay. And my healing journey began with uh, trauma therapy. And trauma okay. therapy was able to get to the root of anxiety, why anxiety, depression, why, why depression. You have mm-hmm. ADHD. Let's get to the root of that. Mm-hmm. And finally, once I began trauma therapy, the healing began. Mm-hmm. Um, so I currently see a trauma therapist who has been able to help me immensely. Um, EMDR has helped. And then also IFS, which is internal family systems therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's incredible. And I think it's, it's a big reason for why I'm, I'm so passionate about teaching our young people about their mental health I think it's so important it's so important that they can recognize from an early age I think you know when they're struggling and know that there are places they can go to get help even at that stage you know um, because it can just cause so much more <laughs> more anxiety more more depression more more of that sense of i must be crazy things are, why is all this happening to me you know mm-hmm. um and understanding why can really help get to the root of it as you say and it can really help you um to begin that recovery journey that's really important to do so absolutely yeah. and our my boys and our children i think our youth um are learning more about it, I think, than I did, or possibly mm-hmm. it's just the world they're in. Because um, yeah. my boys have words that I never had. Yeah. And then raising them to openly discuss mental health. Yeah. Takes the stigma out of it. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And they've had friends with major mental health issues or challenges. Yeah. And they knew exactly what it was because we've talked yeah. about it openly. Mm-hmm. And so and they were there to support those friends i think in ways that having those open discussions mm-hmm. they kind of knew mm-hmm. how to have yeah. those conversations with their friends and not to be afraid of it and yeah sure you know yeah. so. so how did they cope when you were struggling um and there was all that all this sort of stuff going on around you as it were yeah how did how did your boys cope what did you how were you able to kind of um, be as a family together, I guess? Yeah. Um, I told you before that I was going to be real honest and say, listen, mm-hmm. I wasn't the best mom during that time. Um, Cause I don't want it. I don't want it to look like, and we lived happily ever after and, yeah, it, and it was all fine and dandy. Cause it wasn't, I wasn't the best mom. Um, but we became a team. Mm-hmm. One thing that, was really important to me was that we had open discussions Mm 
And my boys saw me at my absolute worst. Mm -hmm. And very unfortunately, my oldest boys became adults before they should have. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the best thing that we as parents can do is, and this was advice given to me at one Mm -hmm. point, um, help yourself. Mm -hmm. Help yourself first. It's It's like that example of being in an airplane and you Mm -hmm. can't help anyone else until you put your oxygen mask on. Yeah. And so it's the same with mental health and trauma. Um, Put your oxygen mask on. And that's what I started doing at the very Mm -hmm. end. Mm -hmm. They had to live through a lot of hell. Mm -hmm. But I finally put my oxygen mask on. I finally took them and left the abusive situation. I Mm -hmm. finally got myself help. Mm. And in modeling, even getting yourself help mm. um, shows them that that's okay. Mm. And they see a different you because my, my kids see a different me now. I'm completely mm. different than what mm. I was six, seven years ago. Mm. Mm. Um, and my family says that too. Chris, my, one of my brothers told me, you look like you were dead. Like you were walking dead, gray, mm. hair falling out. Mm. Um, leaving that situation, putting my oxygen mask on and finally getting trauma therapy has helped Mm. immensely Mm. openly talking about it with my boys in the midst and becoming a team in the midst. Mm. Um, Mm. And that's all I can tell you because the truth is until you leave and get help. um, Yeah. Yeah. It's really challenging. Yeah. Absolutely. Sharing and talking and not hiding anything. I was bent on never hiding anything mm. because I had been raised to hide things. I, I was raised to have skeletons in the closet. And I knew at the very least that is so unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I parented with doors wide open, open discussions, mm. becoming a team, talking about it, being very open and honest, mm. allowing them to speak into my life too and have a voice. Yeah, yeah. And then something that was different about my boys too, though, is they went to a a high school that was focused on um, working in hospitals. So part of their education was actually in a hospital. So very interestingly enough, my oldest son was working in a therapy, um, what do you call it? A a therapy office and then also in a um, mental health ward. And he learned things that I didn't even know about mental health challenges and mental health. So he started bringing me words that I had never heard of before. Yeah, okay. Uh, wow. Yeah. That's quite a, that must have been quite an education for them. Um, yeah, that's incredible. incredible. I know. Incredible kind of grounding for them as well to have to have learned so much about human behaviour and human life in that kind of context. Um must have been really fascinating for them um and yeah really well grounded as a result i just wanted to ask you about um trauma therapy because it sounds like it's quite a big deal Mm -hmm. like when you say when you use the word trauma it can Mm -hmm. it can feel like a really weighty word and in a way it is Mm -hmm. um because you know there is nothing easy (laughs) or Mm -hmm. straightforward Mm-hmm. about a traumatic situation and um, and there is nothing easy and straightforward about trauma therapy in that sense either but can you just tell us maybe a little bit about how you managed to um 
find somebody and I know um you've done some interviews with your trauma therapist your current trauma mm-hmm. therapist and mm-hmm. that's been really interesting that are available to, for people to watch if they would like to um but I'm just interested in in how you kind of got over that sense of oh I need a trauma therapist how mm-hmm. has this happened you know or, yeah. or any of that kind of thing um the sound of trauma therapy can be terrifying because mm. your first thought is I'm going to have to go back into that mm. trauma and I don't want to relive it. Mm. I would rather just ignore it. Mm. But again, in my forties, I thought this was my thought. Mm. You don't have to wait till your forties. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> my thought was I've already lived half my life. How do I want to live the rest of my life? Mm. I literally had this thought, and I had that thought even before I left my abusive situation. Mm -hmm. I've lived half my life. How do I want to live the rest of my life? And I don't want to live it like this, bedridden, unable to move, unable to engage with the world. I know I was not created for this. Mm -hmm. I know I have a purpose, and it's not this. Mm -hmm. And I know this is not God's purpose for my life, Mm -hmm. contrary to what I had been taught. Mm -hmm. Um, So I hit rock bottom Mm. and I knew I was going to have to tackle my traumas and I guess possibly when you hit rock bottom you can continue to go and lay there or you can choose to Mm. heal Um, and that's not to say that you know anyone who doesn't choose trauma therapy is choosing the wrong way because you do have that thought I'm going to enter into trauma now Mm. finding a really good healthy trauma therapist is key. Mm. Uh, my trauma therapist told me from the moment I met him, I'm not going to allow you to relive that trauma. Okay. You're going to touch on it. Mm. The, MD, the EMDR begins at that point. Mm. Um, and now let's be real honest. Every time I had EMDR therapy, it came with dreams. Mm-hmm. And my trauma therapist assured me that's your brain's way of healing. Mm-hmm. Um, it came with triggers. It came with um, hypervigilance, mm-hmm. possibly for a week. Um, so it was really challenging, but I knew I had spoken to enough people who had gone through EMDR therapy before and mm-hmm. had that, mm-hmm. that you just have to get through it mm-hmm. and it will be much better on the other side. Mm-hmm. So I think my EMDR lasted maybe a month or two. Okay. And then I was able to begin the IFS approach, which is internal family systems approach that my mm. therapist uses. Mm. Um, I'm not going to try to explain that because I will mess it up. I would mm-hmm. rather you um, yeah. look at what my therapist has written or look at his the, the interviews I've done with him. Yeah. Um, but once I was able to get through the hurdle of EMDR, the piece that came with it was incredible. And I remember my therapist asking me in one of my first sessions, basically pointing out, Christelle, how well do you sleep? I don't. Hmm. Your brain can't heal unless you're sleeping. Mm-hmm. And those of us who live with trauma, and in my case, I have CPTSD, which is um, ongoing trauma. You, it's, mm-hmm. it means that you live with trauma. It's often associated with people who fought in a war. Mm-hmm. Um, it means yeah. that you can't get out of it. Yeah. It's not a one-time thing. It's something that you felt super hopeless and couldn't get out. Yeah. That's often associated with abuse, narcissistic abuse, people who have been through war, mm-hmm. ongoing trauma that you can't get out. So he basically said, listen, your brain can't heal because you can't sleep. So this is 
this is what we're going to do to get you mm -hmm. to that point. Your brain will be able to start healing. Um, and it's, it's a process. Mm -hmm. I had a lot to undo, mm -hmm. a lot to heal from. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't the healing part, the EMDR. It did not re-traumatize me. Okay. Mm, that's so, really interesting to hear. My, and, my therapist set up safe spaces so that that mm, wouldn't happen. Yeah. And so yeah. Um, basically what, what happens is once you do your EMDR, um, if you feel like or he feels like you might be getting re-traumatized, mm. you have created a safe place to kind of put yourself back into. Yeah. And he sure. talked me through that or my, my therapist talked to me through yeah. that. Yeah, but again, sure. listen to the interviews I've done because he explains it so much better. But but yeah, yes. basically I hit rock bottom. I knew I had two places mm, okay. to go there or go up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I chose trauma therapy. So and I chose it really, Jenny, for my boys too. Yeah, sure. Um, I I wanted to kind of model like therapy is good and it's okay. Yeah, and. I also wanted to be healthy for um, my new relationship as well. That was yeah. very important to me. Mm -hmm. So not to bring traumas into any new relationship. So that was yeah. important as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's great. It's I, it's it's so good to um, hear you talk in really positive terms about being in therapy and and you know that um, those kind of uh processes i guess to to for your brain to try and make sense emdr is um the eye movement desensitization something i can't remember yeah, what is it is. rapid eye movement desensitization? Uh, it's something like that and actually the best explanation i've heard for it is from your therapist on that on the interview that you did so if if you're listening to this and you're interested in that um i will put the links for that in the show notes once we've once this goes out out um, live so that people can actually access that because i do think that it, he was really good in that in that um interview and it's not particularly long or difficult to listen to so Absolutely. i would suggest that people he do explains it. he explains it so well and he even gives his own story of how he he started being a therapist yeah and, yeah and in his story alone is why, you know, going, having a trauma therapist and choosing a trauma therapist, if you've been through trauma, finding that safe therapist yeah. is immensely important. Oh, well, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And I think that um, therapy as a whole gets a bit of a bad name, really, for what, when you end up in a situation where, you know, you're... Um, the, the relationship doesn't really mesh well with your therapist or they're the wrong kind of therapist for the kind of therapy that you need and all of those kinds of things. And I think, um, you know, that can end up doing more damage than good, actually. Um, so it's, it is worth getting the right person and the right type of therapy for um, for you as an individual. And, and it's, it's, it's a really important thing. So let's end on a little bit of a um, positive note by asking you, and I know this is a question that you like to ask some of your guests, so I'm going to turn it back on you. <laughs> what is it that brings you hope? What is it that it brings you, me hope? That brings you hope. <laughs> Every time I ask that to a guest, too, they're shocked. 
what brings me hope? My children bring me hope. Watching them live their lives brings me hope. Finding community where women encourage each other and build each other up brings me so much hope. Um, knowing that there is hope and that hope is real alone brings me hope. Having lived the exact opposite and clinging to the hope that others shared and knowing their stories were real brought me hope back then and it still brings me hope. And the potential of knowing that my story now might bring someone else hope brings me hope. Love brings me hope. Laughter brings me hope. Dancing brings me hope. Jenny, you bring me hope. Just having our conversations. <laughs> That's brilliant. Christelle, thank you so much for being a guest on the Jenny Talks podcast. It's been so brilliant thank to talk you. to you. Thank, thank you. you. So, what were the points which really stood out to you in that conversation? I'd really like to know. So do contact me either on Facebook, Twitter or by email on jennytalks at gmail.com. I'll put the social media links in the show notes. I think for me it was the courage to go against the grain of how Christelle had been put up. The phrase parenting with doors wide open really struck a chord with me. It's really interesting to hear about how her boys have been so integral to her journey out of an abusive relationship. And although she was really honest about not having been the best parent, she has certainly been modelling that getting yourself some help thing, which is honestly the best thing you can do. Making sure that we as parents model the way we want our children to be is absolutely the best thing. After all, we parent them in behavioural avoidance mode, always telling them what they can't do, that's going to lead to rebellion. If we're always making the decisions for them about the best thing to do right now, that's not always going to end well. There comes a time for every young person to be independent. Much of our parenting needs to aim for that goal, especially with teenagers. But it will be easier if we start earlier. Christelle mentions an approach to trauma therapy called EMDR. And as I said in our conversation, I'd recommend that if you're interested in this, you watch her show with Mike Phillips, the link to which is in the show notes. But by way of a short explanation, EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing theory. It's a phased approach to treating traumatic and other symptoms by reconnecting the client in a safe and measured way to the images, emotions, sensations associated with trauma, allowing brain to to, uh, naturally heal and move towards uh, a much more whole position, um, untraumatized. I would say that if you recognise anything in Christelle's story that resonates with your own, you have concerns about your own mental health, do call someone. The Samaritans are an amazing helpline which you can call anytime if you need to talk to someone. In the UK, their number is 116123. In the USA, you can call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration helpline, which is 1-800-662-HELP and then 4357, and I've put those numbers in the show notes as well. It's been really great to talk to Christelle. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I use the Anchor.fm app to create and distribute this podcast. It's really easy, which is good because I'm not terribly techie. 
And this week is the week my new book has launched, From Isolation to Community. It's now available in Kindle format from Amazon. Print copies will follow. I'll put all the links in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe.